Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from PepTalks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity-backed and entrepreneurial companies. Welcome to our next episode of our podcast, Map of the Maze. Delighted to have Steve Groves with us this morning. Steve is one of our founding members, and I've spent some time with Steve uh, in the past, but haven't actually caught up on your story for a few years so we're just we're just going to rerun that and it's a fascinating story um steve was the ceo of partnership assurance really from starting the business in 2005 raising funds with phoenix equity partners and the business just went through meteoric growth didn't they you know from 100 million to 300 million then yeah, so if you look back on that business, I think the first full year was a was a hundred million. The third full year was three hundred and. You went from zero to a hundred million. In the first pretty year. much zero, not not quite zero, because we started the business by buying a effectively bust small business. So that that might have been turning over sort of fifty, sixty million. So that we inherited a flow of about fifty million, but that that was loss making, subscale, pro- problematic. Yeah. Um, so we we did yeah. So the, the numbers are always in my head. We did a hundred million the first year. 333 in in the third year um and about 1.25 billion by the eighth year what was partnership assurance yeah so partnership assurance i always say we were the first big data life insurance business so we had identified that in most insurance markets they ask lots of questions about the people who buy the insurance you try buying a, a pet insurance policy you'll find you probably have to fill in eight pages of history on your your dog's medical history. Um, if you wanted to buy an annuity in 2005, they asked you age, gender, and premium, and that was it. Now, an annuity is something that pays an income every year until you die, so your, your health is actually quite important. And what we worked out was if you if you moved first, you collected everybody's medical records, you priced for the medical conditions they had, and over time you evolved the pricing to reflect the data that you need now had that you could build a very sustainable competitive advantage whilst, for your clients, delivering them quite a lot more money. Many of our clients were getting paid 25 50 100% more than they were getting offered by their existing pension providers. How did you get that best? How did you build the best data? Um, by, by being first and by investing in it. So the way that most of our competitors worked is they got a client to fill in a form and they underwrote off that form and gave you a price. We could also do that, but for every client that filled in the form, we got their medical records. We went through their medical records and we codified it. So we built a bigger and more accurate database. And over time, because we were first and because we collected more data on any life, that built into a pretty sustainable competitive advantage in the space. Yeah. Did Phoenix come in from the outset? Were they there? Phoenix were there from day one. Alongside you? Correct. And then uh, 2008, was it, when you changed hands and you did a secondary yeah. bite? So, so 2008, we did a secondary bite. We'd actually had a look at, a, at an IPO the year before uh, in 2007 and, and decided against it. Um, in 2008, we'd grown to a relative size, but I think the thing that really drove that buyout was the opportunity was clearly very, very big. Phoenix didn't have the kind of capital that was required to take that opportunity. I say kind of capital, didn't have the scale of capital was the problem. So we, we did a, a secondary deal with Simvan, roughly 10 times money for Phoenix, who invested... Uh, 10 six, times? Yeah, invested 16, 16 million quid in 05 and got 160 in 08. So they, they were um, supportive, should we say? Yeah. Um, the Simvan ownership period lasted broadly five years, uh-huh. 2008. We exited in an IPO in 
2013 that valued the business at, at the IPO at 1.6 billion and traded up actually to, to two afterwards. Another 10 times return. Yeah, about that. It must have been a real wave to ride, that level <laughs> of growth. It must have been quite sort of scary at times. It was harder than you might think. And, and I always always made that observation to the, to the Simpson guys that whilst from the outside it looks very sort of smooth. Yeah. When you really think about it, our turnover grew 33 to 50% every year for, for 10 years. Um, that's, that takes some managing. And there's easy bits, so you can work out system obsolescence really easily. You can work out you know, how many transactions can I fire through this before it falls over, when do I need to upgrade, that, that bit's fine. Actually, human obsolescence was the biggest challenge, and, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, but I've got a guy who's perfectly good at his job today. His job is growing at 30 to 50% a year, what rate is he growing and can he evolve with the job? When am I actually going to have to act and, and replace somebody who's been perfectly good, has done a great job for me, and, and ultimately the job, the job has just outgrown them? Mm. Um, the vast majority that, that, of people... That's a real skill. To make the decision and judge the timing right is Yeah, and we, very did, we didn't get all of them right, uh, honestly. Um, I think it's the hardest thing in a high-growth, sustained business. It's yeah. much, much harder to spot what I, what I term human obsolescence than it is system or process or... Because someone's, right someone's done a great job, haven't they? I mean, they've they've yeah. come from a position of of a certain size and taken it to double or triple the size. They've done a great job, but they're not correct. They're not going to be able to do it again. So, how did you handle that? Um, a huge mixed number of ways. So, there were some people who you could sit down and say, yeah, "You've done a great job. I think you're a good guy. We like you. You fit the culture. We don't think you're right for this job anymore." However, because the company is growing and evolving, we'd like you to consider some of these jobs and they might be a level down. But you know what? It's a level down in a much bigger company. And some, some people's egos were able to withstand that. Some, some honestly weren't. So there were a number of people who moved into other jobs that were a level down in the organisation, but still you know, they were really good at them and really valuable. There were some people who reacted really badly to the conversation. And ultimately, at that point, you, you're going to part company, hopefully nicely. Yeah. I found it the hardest thing in managing the growth. And what's interesting, and in what I do now, I'm actually coming up against some of the people that, that maybe fell over the side as partnership grew in other roles. But most of them actually left on really good terms. We, some of them we helped into those roles they've got now. Yeah. Um, so it's not a question of these, these weren't good people who didn't do a great job for us. It's just that the job outgrew them. Yeah. It's so important, isn't it, to handle it in the right way. You never know yeah. when you're going to bump into those people again. And it's just the right thing to do, isn't it? Just, I think the latter's the bigger point. Yeah. Ultimately, these people have done nothing wrong. No. They've ultimately been so successful that they yeah. can no longer do their own. How did you stay ahead of the curve? Because <laughs> you, you were, you know, you were one, one of those people, weren't you? Yeah, I had, I mean, I, I joke about having three teams. I had three jobs. So on day one, broadly speaking, I was the only executive in the business. So everything came to me and every decision was mine. As we started to build that team, my, my job changed, but still it was it was quite a junior team relative to you know, what you might see elsewhere in the industry. So most of the big decisions came to me. By the end, my job wasn't to make the big uh, wasn't to make most of the decisions. It was to hire the right people to make the decisions. And I always said I uh, I started enjoying being a CEO when the role changed from having the answer to everything to creating the culture where the answer can emerge and they're very different jobs and mm. I found in the early days when I was the only sort of senior person in the business 
having to be the answer to everything is actually quite pressured. You, you've got to get them all right. You've got to be all over everything. Once we got to the phase we were probably by about 2012, where I had a really strong team, and, and everybody in my team by 2012 was better at their own jobs than I'd been when I was doing it mm. off, off the side of a desk in 05, 06. Actually, that's really quite enjoyable. So the, the IPO, did you have to IPO at that point? Did you reach a size where that was really the right no, thing to do? Yeah, so I, I think there were, there were a couple of things happened. One is we were in a Simvan fund, which was probably a couple of years old when we went into it. They'd held us for five years from 08 to 13. So the fund was six, seven years old. It was sort of at the end of its investment period, much more into its harvesting period. The second was particularly around sort of 12, 13, there was significant pressure from the investors in private equity funds for private equity funds to IPO assets. And that's because if you think about it, if I'm running the Canadian State Pension Fund, yeah. I probably have investments in Blackstone, Simvan, CVC. So when Simvan sell to CVC, yes, Simvan make a big return, but actually the buyer is buying from themselves. So it's, it, what they wanted was some validation of prices through IPOs. Um, IPO wasn't really my preference, if I'm honest. I, I didn't think the business was quite ready. It was a few years too soon in my eyes. But equally, the environment was right to do it. It was the right thing for the shareholders, and I didn't believe it was going to do significant damage to the business. Mm-hmm. How did you get ready for the process of IPO? <laughs> I don't think you can ever get ready for the process of IPO. But we, we went about it, as the advisors were talking me through it, broadly speaking, the process that, that most people had been following up until then was you keep everything secret, and then at the last minute you pop up and say, ta-da, would you like to buy some shares? Yeah. That, that, that seemed a pretty suboptimal process. So we went about it differently, and we went and did probably six, nine months ahead of the IPO. We went out and started building relationships with the key investors. So, and we weren't selling them shares. We were simply going out, educating on the business, saying this will come up at some point. And, and what it did was it allowed me on a quarterly basis to say, OK, this is what we're going to do this quarter, and then come back a quarter later and say, oh, look, we've done exactly what we said, which just helps them feel comfortable with you as a, as a management team and a business. Did those uh, sort of early fireside chats work then did those chosen sort of institutions get on board as you yes yeah so we we found when when we went on the road there was a degree of excitement i think it'd be fair to say from the road show from the investors so we'd gone out with a price range and and the way an ipo works you you say we don't know where it's going to be but it's going to be in this sort of range and investors submit orders at prices so it might be i'll have this many shares at two pound fifty i'll have this this number at three pound and this number at 350 we were covered so the challenge is to get your book covered at the low end because until you've got your book covered at the low end you don't know you've got an IPO we were covered by midday on the first day of the roadshow that, that sort of told us we were done and dusted on the IPO we were 20 times covered at the top of the range by the end of the, the roadshow so it definitely worked and a lot of the people that we pre, pre-marketed to and spent time with came in with big orders early which is quite that increased the value did that um, have an effect on the well it, it would have done except we refuse to move the price range what you'd normally do in that situation is you say okay i'm 20 times covered yeah. at three pound 60 i'm going to move it up to four pound 50 and go and see what my orders are at four simvan to their credit had agreed with me we weren't going to do that the reason was i didn't want our share price to get ahead of where we were as a business we still had a whole load of stuff we needed to do we weren't the finished article and i felt if we'd ipo'd at five quid investors could quite rightly come back to me later and say, hold on a minute. So we, we decided, and, and I think Simvan were right to do it, to hold the top of the range and not go any higher. 
So we, we put a range out on day one. We said, okay, we're at the top of the range. That's the price, but we're not going to increase it. That meant that the IPO investors on day one had, frankly, a, a choice whether to take a profit or not. The share traded up to, to five quid in early trading. So by two o'clock in the afternoon on the first day, IPO investors could get out with a 30 40% profit. That's that's a nice position to be in with your shareholders. Amazing. And when, as, as you're working through the process, you said it was incredibly demanding in that how many of you in the top team of the IPO? Is it just you and the CFO? Dull was the word I used. Dull, yeah. <laughs> no, Dull and demanding. All no, this. so we, it, it was much more than that. And we divided the team up. And it was the benefit of having a really strong team. So yeah. we had um, a, a guy who, who ran the UK retirement business and a chief operating officer who focused on keeping the wheels on. Who ran the business. Who ran the business day yeah. to day. And we really leaned hard on them. And in some ways, in, in sort of an IPO process, it might be seen as the less glamorous part of the process. But you know what? As a team, you need those people to do that. Because if, if you go out to market and your sales numbers are behind where you said they're going to be and you're not hitting the stuff that's in your prospectus, it's, kind of, mm. it's not a good indicator. So it, it was a very much a team effort. And everybody in the team had to play a part in making the IPO happen, even if that part was taking loads of stuff off other people's desks so that they could do the IPO. How many were in the roadshows? Actually, in with investors, yeah. uh, three. Myself, the CFO, and a investor relations director who was going to pick up the relationship afterwards so that when investors had a question or a call, that's, that's the first port in. So it made sense to take that person on the roadshow so that people could get to know them. Mm. When you go through the float, what are your restrictions in terms of selling your, <laughs> your equity and the management team's restrictions on, on equity? In theory, whatever you agree with the market, the investment bank, um, I think market standard is twelve months from the IPO. So you might sell, uh, you might sell a proportion in the IPO, and again, market standard is probably about twenty five percent. I don't think the market's as sensitive on a strong IPO as they are on a weaker one. So if if there's lots of demand for the shares, they'll probably give you a bit more latitude. But mar- market standard is probably you can sell twenty five percent in the IPO, and then you lock the balance up for twelve months. In practice, as a, a, a CFO or CEO of a PLC, your opportunities to trade are really limited. So the lockup is significantly academic in my mind because most of the time you're sat on information that's not known in the public markets and you can't trade. When can you trade? They, they give you they give you a window. Well, don't g- they? Generally, immediately after results announcements, because at, uh, the way the rules work at a results announcement, you have to put out you know, anything that's sort of market sensitive and, and public market investors might reasonably consider to influence the share price as the weeks go by after that announcement the business will be doing stuff uh, so pretty quickly you end up in a, in a position where it's quite difficult to trade again how did the ceo role change uh now you're running a, a fully public company i think it became significantly less enjoyable if i'm really honest um if you're running a private company you spend 90% of your energies on the company. And I always sort of said, my, my when I ran Simvan, probably 40, 40, 50% of my time running the business for Simvan was spent on people. 25, 30% was spent on, on strategy. And maybe 10% was spent on investor relations, external stakeholder management. It almost reversed when you become a PLC CEO. So... You know, once a quarter you're going on the road, that road show might be a week or two weeks. So that's that's a big chunk of a quarter gone already where you're just talking to investors. Um, 
you've got all the preparation for the results. You've got to sign them off. You've got to go through all the all the all the sort of uh, pre- presentations and make sure they're where you where you want to be. So a huge proportion of your time goes on to communicating with investors, and it's it seriously eats into the time you have available to actually run the business. Um, so personally, no, I didn't really enjoy it. I found I was I was more of a salesperson, less of a CEO. Mm. That quarterly reporting process to the brokers. It's the brokers, isn't it? You go and see. Who do you go and see? You go and see the shareholders. The shareholders and the, don't you go? Don't you have to go and see a? You you have on your side what's called the house brokers. They will be typically investment banks, and they will help you. Uh, shape your messaging, shape your presentations, and their analysts will participate in that process often. You then go and do a presentation. Your first presentation is to market. It's publicly available, and it's it's aimed at everybody. It's your shareholder meeting. So that's it, it can be your shareholder meeting, it can be a webcast, it can be a statement, but they're all, they all have to go to everybody. Yeah. So your first thing on the results morning, and typical results morning for me would be wake up about 5 a.m., Go for a short run, just so that I've, I wasn't as grumpy by the end of the day. In the office sometime just after six. Seven o'clock, the release goes out. And, and what you're doing between six and seven is preparing for the meeting that comes immediately after the release. So the release goes out, and that's got all your numbers in, anything you need to say. 9.30, 10 o'clock, analyst meeting, which will be all of the analysts of all of the investment banks who put out reports and research and advise shareholders come. You, you present the numbers to them. You do a Q&A with them. By midday, that's done. You then hit the road and you go and see your main shareholders and you talk to them about the numbers and you answer their questions and that's, that, that's your results day. Mm. How long did you do it for? Longer than I wanted. Um, so uh, three and a bit years. What were you thinking at the time? Because you obviously felt it wasn't it wasn't a an environment that you were in love with as you were with the business under private equity ownership. No. So what, what, what was your plan? What were you thinking? How long am I going to do this for? Well, so it's interesting. I, I think in the aftermath of the IPO, my mindset changed from being a business owner to paid staff. That, that, that sounds really blunt, but that's how it felt to me. Mm-hmm. So to me, it changed my mentality. I, I know it changed my mentality. I started to think about managing succession and about what succession would look like. So certainly by the... The early part of, well, late 2013, early 2014, I, I was starting to think, how, how do I manage my way out of this and go back to doing something that I'd enjoy more? Mm. But then um, circumstances changed. In yeah. Someone spoiled my led, plans. Led by Mr. Osborne. Yeah. And what, what happened? Just just tell us what you Yeah, so, I mean, it was interesting. We, we talked about the sort of full year uh, or results or quarterly results. So actually, the in March 2014, there were some changes to pensions rules in the budgets, which were pretty profound in their impact on the business. And they happened on our full year results day. So if, if you go back to my sort of pattern of the day, we, we'd done our, our announcement. I'd been in at seven in the morning. We'd done the media. We'd done the analysts. We were out on the road with shareholders when the announcement came out. Uh, nobody had any warning of it. They always brief a little bit, and the briefings we'd been getting from from government were there's nothing on pensions in the budget, and that's that's what the industry was hearing. And I, and I learned very genuinely. I learned from uh, a post-it note that, that was given to me. That, that's how I found out. And the post-it note broadly said annuity compulsion gone in budget, share price down seventy three percent. That was it. Um, which, which is sort of a, a, an interesting day at that point. <laughs> yeah. What was the pathway out? You emerged, didn't you? Pretty early after the budget, actually, there were some conversations held between myself and, and the chief exec of Just Retirement. They broadly said, this is sort of how I'm seeing it. How are you seeing it? Should we just let it play out for a few months and then 
and then regroup. And, and those, those early conversations were, were just sort of putting each other on notice, I think, that, that both of us could see this was one possible path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was the background that led to the merger discussions. And you, post-merger, you then exited sort of stage left. That was... That was my exit. Yeah, that so was your... I, I left the, the second before the merger completed, technically. That was, that was how we structured the legal documents. How did that feel for you? I know, I know psychologically, because this was a business that you started, this is something that you, you know, there was an idea and you built it from scratch. So I would say two things about leaving. Leaving the company by that point felt good. I'd, I'd fallen out of love with it. The thing that was really hard was leaving the people. And to this day, I'm still in touch with a huge number of them and from all across the organisation at lots of different levels. Do you miss that? Do you miss being part of... I know, you know your, your career has gone on and you're now chairing businesses, but do you miss that day-to-day interaction with a really close team? Um, I'm supposed to say yes here, Steve. But... Well, I was going to say <laughs> yes, but... so. Yes, yes, I do. But again, it's that actually you know, the businesses I chair are private businesses. Most of the time I'm working pretty closely with the team, with the chief exec. So I think a, a good private equity chair is not like being a PLC chair. No. How often do I speak to the chief execs and other directors of most of the businesses I chair? You know, I speak to the chief execs multiple times a week. I speak to many of the directors more than once a week. I, I'm still part of a team. I'm just playing a different role in it. How do you how do you set yourself up to be a good chair? So I guess the, the first thing I would say, and, and where, where does chairing go wrong, is when you, you get confused and think you're the chief exec, and you're not. Um, your job as a chair is, is to manage the board, it's to make sure that the strategy piece is done well. It's not to do it, it's to make sure it's done well. It's to make sure the communication and the relationships with the shareholder are, are done well. Again, it, it's not to do it, and, and quite often it's more to facilitate it than to do it. And then it's to help the chief exec. And the way I try and chair businesses is, I'm not going to sit there telling the chief execs what to do. 99% of the time they don't need me to do that. My job is to be a sounding board, it's to help them. When I think they're missing things, actually generally, I convey that one-to-one by asking them questions. I'm not a great believer in sort of publicly exposing things. And my job is to make the chief exec look good. That's genuinely how I view the job, is to make sure that he, he gets to that board, he's thought about everything he needs to thought about, the documents are exactly as they should be, and actually, from the outside, everything's gone perfectly. That, that's, that's the job of a chairman, in, in my mind. Um, it's, it's a bit like being a sort of support act in a, in a band. It's, your job is not to be the headline act, it's to make sure everything goes well. Mm. And, and the sort of playback to the private equity firm? Or, so that's, that's very much the role for the CEO. What about the shareholder so again when do you end up having discussions with the with the shareholder without the chief exec they're largely when things aren't going so well um and i think as a chairman you can play multiple roles so the first thing is try and stop it getting to that point in the first place Mm. the second is when you sense that's happening to to talk to the ceos and get the ceos engaged with the shareholders and open and explaining and sometimes, let's be very clear, sometimes the CEO's right and the shareholder's wrong. And I think one of the really strong jobs of a chairman is in that occasion to tell the shareholder that. That's a difficult message for the CEO to deliver. It's a much easier message for the chairman to deliver. Again, I, I come back to I was really lucky in partnership. We, we found a chairman who was both my chairman and my sounding board. 
So he was somebody that would help me with the you know, shareholder management, the governance, the documents. But actually, when I didn't know what to do in the early days, when it was just me, who did I phone? I phoned my chairman and, and the conversation went, can I have a Steve Ian discussion rather than a CEO chairman discussion? Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite a valuable part of being a chairman because the CEO is a lonely job. Yeah. Right? I've said it before. If, if you want to stop people giving you the whole truth about what's going on in the organisation, the, the best way to do it is to be appointed CEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you cope or maintain your energy performance levels as a CEO of a partnership for, for 10, 11 years? How did you... How did, you, how did you just balance yourself? Yeah, uh, so uh, I got better at it, I think would be the answer. Early doors, it was pretty much all-encompassing. By the end, it, it was actually much more about planning. I worked with my, with my PA quite closely, and so there are only so many dinners a week I'm doing. I then got to a point where I said to my PA, I, I want hours in the day carved out for me. So we're going to agree a number of hours each week, which are in the diary, where you can't arrange meetings. Mm. So over time, we, we got quite good at working out how many hours a week I, I wanted to think and I wanted to be able to wander down and you know, go, go to our offices in Red Hill and wander around and talk to people. Uh, these things are important, but they, they're the first things that go if you don't manage them carefully. Mm. And then on a, on a personal side, I, re- I rearranged a little bit of, of the stuff I did, so, but ultimately I always had interests outside work um, and I always made some time for them. Cause and what were they? I said, Aren't you a musician or no? God no. Was it sport? Was it running? So, so r- running. Uh, there's a fun, there's a funny story around the IPO, which is um, I was down to run the London Marathon, and we were going to IPO the week before, so we were going to do the announcement, do the roadshow, and the marathon would have been the Sunday in the middle of the roadshow, and that was sort of fine. And then the IPO got shifted back, and the the launch to market, all the media events, all the analyst presentations were the Monday after the London Marathon. And my chairman sat me down and he said, I know you're going to be running the London Marathon on Sunday, but you're launching an IPO at 7am in London on Monday. I don't think it's a good idea. And I was going through my head thinking, oh, come on, I've been training for this for how long? So I said, OK, Chris, I absolutely hear you. I really appreciate that we've had this conversation. Thank you. And then I went and ran the London Marathon. Um, why? Because actually, it was important to me. I decided this was one of my goals. I was going to do this. So I, so I ran it on the Sunday and I did the IPO on the Monday and it was fine. Yeah. Steve, that's been great. Thanks very much. You can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>